I'm Jorge Salazar with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. In the midst of a global pandemic with COVID-19, it's hard to appreciate how lucky those outside of Africa have been to avoid the deadly Ebola virus disease. It incapacitates its victims soon after infection with massive vomiting or diarrhea, leading to death from fluid loss in about 50% of those afflicted. The Ebola virus transmits only through bodily fluids, though, marking a key difference from the COVID-19 virus and one that has helped contain Ebola spread. Ebola outbreaks continue to flare up in West Africa, although a vaccine developed in December of 2019 and improvements in care and containment have helped keep Ebola in check. Supercomputer simulations by a University of Delaware team that included an undergraduate supported by the Exceed Empower program are adding to the mix and helping to crack the defenses of Ebola's coiled genetic material. This new research could help lead to breakthroughs in treatment and improved vaccines for Ebola and other deadly viral diseases, such as COVID-19. On the line to talk now about their research findings on Ebola are Juan Perilla, Chaui Shu, Tanya Nesterova, and Nidhi Katyal. Perilla is an assistant professor. Shu is a PhD student. Nesterova, an undergraduate researcher, and Katyal, a postdoctoral researcher, all in the Perilla Lab, Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry, University of Delaware. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks. What are the main findings of your study on the Ebola virus? Uh, this was published in the 2020 Journal of Chemical Physics. Our main findings are related to the stability of the nucleocapsid. So viruses, they have multiple components and, you know, they, they're like little machines and part of those nanomachines or nanodevices are this thing called the nucleocapsid, which directly interacts with the virus genome. In this case, the virus genome is in the form of RNA, just like any other living creature in the world. What we've, we've found is that the virus has evolved to regulate the stability of the nucleocapsid by forming electrostatic interactions with the RNA. So there is an interplay between the RNA and the nucleocapsid that keeps it together. We found some uh, molecule determined that uh, control the stability of the Ebola nucleocapsid. I don't really have much else to add other than what we used in order to find the stability. It was just molecular dynamic simulations and electrostatic analysis with sodium and chloride ions. What is a nucleocapsid and why did you all focus in on this thing? So nucleocapsids are protein shells that essentially protect the genetic material that the viruses use to replicate. Ebola nucleocapsid is more of a helically shaped structure, which is composed of, I think it was three protein subunits, right, Chaoyi? Yes. And they're repeated with helical symmetry with the RNA uh, kind of like a winding string on the inside. And this structure of having a helical nucleocapsid is very vital for transcription directly in the cytoplasm. There are other viruses, such as HIV, which have different structures that are asymmetrical capsids, or you can have icosahedral. Um, but the helical nucleocapsid is specifically what we had to study. And the structure was obtained from a nature paper. Um, it was Civita. HIV also has a nucleocapsid, and 
but it's not as organized as the one that we have in, in, in these viruses. So in, in general, the, the nucleocapsids are proteins that interact with RNA uh, directly. So HIV also has a nucleocapsid that interacts directly with RNA. The structure of the nucleocapsid. This was just—it's—it's it's very recent, right? Twenty seventeen. Is that—is that right? Are these findings, you know, the, the basic knowledge of the structure, and then now you're you're finding out a little bit about how the the, the relationship between the the genetic material, the RNA, and the and the proteins around it, uh, how they work together. Do these point to a weakness in this virus? Like as you mentioned, something that could be used for a therapeutic down the road that it could really help people. Something that that is a lot easier to, to take and all that. So we have figured out what are the key points where we can actually target. So for example, the RNA, we can target that. It's, yeah, for example, uh, the role of ions we have figured out. So that way, like we figured out what are the key determinants of that molecular stability so that we can target those key points and destabilize that. So can you think of a specific point, like uh, any, like the regions that you guys identified um yeah, for example the NPNP interactions so what are those uh so maybe so we can have a little bit more about how it comes together like uh you know what is NPNP yeah NP is a nuclear protein so we have different nuclear proteins forming a helical arrangement so the interface of those nuclear protein nuclear protein so there are two kind of interfaces we figured out that which of the interface basically plays a more important role so we can actually target that particular interface to destabilize the helical symmetry it's almost like a Lego, if you want to think about it. But you put together the little pieces, and as Tanya was saying, it's kind of like a spiral. And it forms this like little spiral. In kind of like, you know, you have... How many, how, many, how many of these Legos you have per turn of this spiral? I don't remember, 14? I think per turn is about 24. 24, 24 right? yeah. Full turn, right? And then... Mm -hmm. It goes, makes 24 units, and then you have another spiral and so on. And then you, you have these little spiral that goes up. And what he's talking about is the interactions between these Legos, we call the nuclear proteins, right? It's, it's almost like you put them together, or they, well, it puts together itself. Nobody puts it together, right? It's just assembled. And um, it, it, but it, it's also, um, it's, it's a little bit more than just like it self-assembled. It's like from what uh, the simulations reveal, it also has this tendency to open up at the end. And typically when you see these things in the simulations, they're usually related to some biological function. So it is known for other viruses, not so much for Ebola. Partic I mean, we know a lot about, for instance, HIV, because there's been like 30 years of research just focused on the virus. So it's a good model organism, but we know that it's not just trying to, but like it's, you might think naively that you can just attack the virus by trying to destroy the, these nucleocapsid, but they are tightly regulated. So actually if you do the opposite, if you make it too stable, that's enough to make the virus dead, which seems counterintuitive, right? But at some point, um, it has to release its genetic material. So, so that's what happened is um, the virus needs to be able to come apart. But if you, make, you don't let it do that, if it is like overly stabilized, then that's also another strategy to develop these uh, small molecules. And that's something that has been used in, in HIV. It hasn't been used dramatically on, on other 
systems, but it's something that we can, I mean, because we know it works in HIV, something you can start to think about in, in Ebola once you start to look at the, how the interactions are there. So you, you, rather than trying to destabilize, you can overstabilize. And similarly for other viruses, you can, you can devise a similar strategy for coronaviruses, for hepatitis B viruses, anything, any of these pathogens, you know, those, those capsids, these macromolecular assemblies are highly regulated and they are, they're at a sweet spot, so to speak, right? And if you move it a little bit to the right, a little bit to the left, it has a detriment on the ability of the virus to infect cells. So it's, I think that's also part of, part of the story is like, we, we know what confers stability. So others, see other teams can go and look, it's like, okay, maybe this is a good druggable site for making it hyperstable or making it uh, hyperstable and, and so on. Dr. Petty, uh, you mentioned putting together the virus, you know, jokingly, but I guess in a way you do that with the simulations, right? Could you speak to how simulations uh, allow scientists to be able to see things about the Ebola that they can't, right now they can't see with the world's best microscopes? And what do these things that you're learning through simulations, what do these things tell scientists about some of the information that you're getting, like through this study? Um, some of the things that you mentioned in the study was uh, the, the way that the genetic material is packed. Tanya mentioned the electrostatic potential, I believe, um, that plays a role in, in keeping it together. And also, I think Needy mentioned, I think, the, um, the, the arrangement, uh, nuclear proteins and also the residues in the, in the helical assembly. Uh, these are things that come out of the, um, the simulations. Could you speak to what you're learning from these simulations? Our simulation work is highly complementary of the experimental techniques. Um, as you said, there is a lot of limitations to experimental uh, experimental uses because of the size of these molecules, right? And they have to do, go through loops and holes to try to obtain a picture of what it looks might look like inside of the cell. And a lot of that is biochemistry. And uh, that by that I mean is that they might be able to get a structure, but it might not be in a biologically relevant state. Right, and that happens quite a bit. For instance, the first nucleoprotein structure of Ebola, which I believe came out in 2017, didn't have RNA in it, and it was a big discussion. You know, I mean, this is all kind of like interesting because if you look back to the most famous double helix, the DNA double helix, right? There was a huge debate whether or not the bases were in or out, and 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 they knew it was a double helix, but they didn't know if the base pairs were forming in or out. So there was a similar discussion with Ebola is like, is the RNA inside of the tube or is it outside? And that was a huge discussion for many years. And many people believe because uh, there's another virus the TMV, the tobacco mosaic virus that also makes a helical arrangement, the RNA is inside. So everybody, because TMV, the RNA was inside, everybody believed that RNA was inside in Ebola. So all the computational models put it inside which were wrong because when, and that's why I mean that it's not in a biological relevant state, because when they actually were able to obtain a complex, which is the one we use, the um, RNA nucleoprotein complex, the nucleocapsid, the RNA is outside. So, you know, like if you're a computational scientist, you might be tempted to just go and simulate the first one that, that came out back in 2017, just because, you know, it's an interesting target, but it's, it's definitely not a biologically relevant state. It's, you know, it's a biochemically obtainable state, but it is not relevant to the biology of the virus versus the one that we simulated, which is uh, biologically relevant. Um, 
So that's, that speaks to the limitations that experimentalists have to face. But uh, on top of that, we, we, we can see things that they cannot see, which is we can see how things wiggle. Like if you think about like a, like a football or soccer match, and if you just take pictures, you just know the beginning and the end, you don't know how the game happened, right? So you, you, you can't tell anything. You just, it's like a, the most boring thing. Where that's kind of what they see is like they have these pictures maybe at the beginning of the game and then at the final and they know the score. They don't know how the game went. But uh, what, what we do is fill in the gap. We see the game, you know, like like things are are moving, like these amino acids are interacting with these others. There is some probability that they might interact in a different way in different regions. So that that also gives us a, a, a lot of statistics and obviously also um a more detailed view of how things occur. Um, and we can test hypotheses as well. I mean, we, we, can, we can introduce something we didn't do in this study, but we've done in other studies, which is start to look at what happens if we introduce a mutation here or there. You know, we can do computational biochemistry and it's just start to look at the effects of individual mutations on the stability or structural integrity properties of this capsid or nucleocapsid systems. You can think of simulation work as a theoretical extension of experimental work. So I'm sure that you're familiar with in vivo and in vitro experimentation in biochemistry. Um, a lot of the time people would call computational simulations in silico because of this. And there's still elements to our simulation that are not super biologically perfect that we can also help extend in future work, such as the addition of viral proteins, which were not included in our simulation. This paper was highly detailed and focusing on Ebola nucleocapsid with and without RNA. And without RNA, we consider that oligomerization of proteins into the helical assembly. And we found that RNA is highly negative and helps stabilize the nucleocapsid through electrostatic interactions with the mostly positive nucleoproteins. Could you run us through the experiment a little bit, just in a nutshell, like, like uh, how was the experiment conducted? Yeah, so as Juan and Tanya also mentioned, uh, we built a structure based on the cryogenic density map, which published in 2000, I think it's 2018, a nature paper. And that, uh, that structure, it only, it has a density and also have a structure. So based on the density and, and, and then the structure of the MoMA, we build a whole tube of the Ebola nuclear capsid. So we, I want to clarify what we mean by a structure is the coordinates. And so like the coordinates and the, the, the type of atoms that make the, the system. That's what we mean by a structure. So I just wanted to clarify that because we keep talking structure, structure, but somebody who doesn't know anything about structural biology might think that, well, okay, what is a structure? So maybe I'll give a little bit of detail is the coordinates of the atoms. So for instance, you know, the structure of water is an oxygen and two hydrogens, right? So, and, and you, you know, they have different certain coordinates. In this case, we have the coordinates of all high oxygens. We know where the oxygens are. We know where the nitrogens are. We know where the carbons are. And we know the by, by by that we also know the relative distances, and that's why we but that's why we mean by a structure. I just noticed we didn't define what we mean by a structure. Sorry, sorry to sorry, interrupt you. Yeah, that's good. Uh, thanks for the the in, introduction about the yeah. Actually, it's not a pure 
structure is uh, a combination of the coordinates. And then we apply, we put these coordinates into the, the electrode experimental density, and we build the whole tube uh, of the Ebola tube. And then we have, we build two systems. One is the Ebola nuclear capsid with the RNA, and the other one is just a nuclear capsid as a control. And then we run this simulation on, on the supercomputer. So after we build the, the whole tube, we add some, for example, we add also put the nuclear capsid in the environment that's similar in cell. So basically we put the ion, sodium chloride ion, and then we adjust their concentration uh, to the concentration that in the cytoplasma. And also we, we also put a, a water box inside around the um, nuclear capsid, and that's a typical protocol to do that. And yeah, and then we run a very powerful uh, simulation, yeah. So the simulation we run is the, we call it molecular dynamic simulation based on Newton's law. So basically it simulates the movement of the interaction of the atoms along the uh, time. And we observe how they change during the, the course of the, of the simulation. And based on this change, we can get some very useful information from this. For example, we can calculate the specific interaction between specific atoms. And then we can, for example, the nuclear NP-NP interaction, which is a nuclear protein-nuclear protein interaction from the simulation result. And also, as Tanya also mentioned, that we can also calculate the electrostatic potential of this whole complex. And also we calculate the ion occupancy from the simulation. Yeah, basically we can get a lot of information from the simulation, which cannot be obtainable from the experimental. So uh, that's why Juan said that uh, our technique is a complementary to the uh, experimental technique. Y'all were um, uh, awarded um, resources by um, the Extreme Science and Engineering Discovery Environment, um, funded by the National Science Foundation, Exceed. Could you speak to what Exceed resources you used? Exceed provides not only um, access to supercomputers, but also access to expertise to be able to, to get the most out of them. And there are also student programs. That, that this, I think this is the first time I get a chance to talk about that. So maybe um, could you speak to uh, how Exceed helped your work? We are very thankful for the supercomputer resources that provide by the XC. Without that, we, uh, this work is, uh, was not impossible. XC also provides some training um, course, for example, the, some online training courses, and that will also have for maybe Tanya. That, um, I was funded this summer by the Exceed Empower Scholarship, which is an apprenticeship program. The Exceed and Power program is an undergraduate program, and I believe that this is more so for advancement of minorities within computational sciences. And I think that it was a pretty effective program. You would have to use computational resources such as bridges we used for some resources this summer. Also very regular communication with the coordinator in order to keep your projects on track. I use uh, the, especially the Stampy 2 and Bridge. We used uh, these two systems for maybe two or three years. The system is very useful for our research, as, as I would mentioned. And we have completed several projects on these two machines. 
And especially for Frontier, I think it just come out. I cannot remember exactly. Please comment. I think last year or the year before last year. And we recently started using the Frontier, especially uh, for the DC Ebola project. And it's more powerful because it has the latest architecture of the CPU. Yeah. And it's very fast, much powerful than the Stampy 2 and Bridges. So, I mean, I guess well, something that is good is that it's, um, it's part of the TAC infrastructure. So uh, we kind of knew what tools were going to be there in terms of the development tools and also the queuing system and other intricacies of these machines. So that helped a lot. And... Uh, in terms of architecture, we're familiar with the um, Stampede 2, although this is a slightly different machine, but uh, I, I think that our experience with Stampede 2 allowed us to, to move quickly to, to start using Frontier. In terms of what, how much more you can do, I, I'll let Chaoyi answer, Erman, uh, Nidhi, Chaoyi, and Tanya have been running more simulations these days than I do, so they can probably give you a better user perspective of the machine in terms of what you can do I like that in Bridges, when you run a simulation, you can be up to date on when it completes and when it started. So you can create stuff like Slurm scripts, which eventually you just get an email when the job is completed. And it also tells you a good amount about the wait time. I think that the advantage of these uh, supercomputer providers is that we can access to the extremely powerful supercomputer resources that we cannot get from local. For example, on Stampede 2, we, can, we have the access to run simulations on hundreds, even thousands of nodes. And this ability may us possible to run some um, simulation of a larger systems, for example, the Ebola uh, nuclear capsule, this one. And these simulations is a kind of computationally impossible to run, to finish it locally. So that's very important. And by using these supercomputer clusters, we are able to around these kind of big systems and then to study their properties and finish lots of uh, projects. We've been talking about a lot of. Um, uh, I find this whole work fascinating. To, you know, I just just on a day to day basis that I'm, it, it seems like it's the hardest science in the world with some of the most uh, hard to understand machines in the world. <laughs> Could you maybe uh, uh, maybe break this down for like non-scientists who might be listening? You know, what's what's in it for them? Uh, how does how does research like this um, help? How does it relate to um, to non-scientists who might be listening? We don't have an immediate answer to a pandemic, for instance. But I mean, the no, the more you know about your enemy, the, the more prepared you are to defend yourself and possibly develop new therapeutics. Right? The success of these approaches in other viruses, particularly in HIV which is a premature field, makes us think that what this knowledge that we're delivering will be used in the future to develop therapeutics, right? There, there, I think it's twofold, the, the, the gain that taxpayers gain is one is there's this new knowledge about, uh, you know, an old virus, but there is also uh, the new techniques, the new methods that are developed for these machines that can be used for the next virus, right? So Ebola has been causing problems for several years now and in a way it's, it's our present HIV is still our present we look forward to the day when it will be our past but there I mean we know that there are going to be more pathogens and they just keep coming up anywhere if you look at right and particularly with coronaviruses now we know that they're just 
around the corner and, and they can stop the, the world. So I think having not only the ability to study one virus, but like, you know, taking these techniques to study a new virus, something like coronaviruses, which is in our portfolio and having the ability to train new students, somebody young like Tanya, who's whenever you have to deal with these things when I'm not doing this anymore. I think that the taxpayers get their money's worth in terms of, you know, training the next generations and fighting the current problems and transferring a lot of knowledge from other viruses. Like we are experts on HIV. That's been what we've been doing for many years, but now we can apply a lot of that knowledge to another virus like Ebola. And we can do it quickly because we're familiar with viruses. We're familiar with the simulation techniques and we have the expertise to know where to look. Right. So I think in that sense, the taxpayers create this, sustain this ecosystem that is not just a one time off publication is it's an ecosystem. You know, you have the trainees that are going to go forward and look for new solutions to new problems. And we also look at our current problems in terms of what pathogens are affecting humanity right now. But yeah, we, we sadly, we don't tell the tax, okay, we we're not clinicians. We don't call, we don't give them, you know, a drug, but we tell, okay, we give that knowledge to the general community and that knowledge it's what allows us or empowers the other scientists who do drug development to look at these things. They didn't, and, and I think we're very lucky that we have the opportunity to grow in an HIV field. And so that has been very successful in, you know, creating new therapeutics and like the latest generation therapeutics are all based on structural analysis. I can't say that we're going to get a drug against Ebola in the next year with, with these, what we've done, but definitely it's an yet another wealth of knowledge that can be used against the virus. So, and also, as I said, the, the people who are involved in, in this research are getting trained and learning how to use these tools for and developing these tools for, for future problems. I think that's also part of what the taxpayers get back from our contributions. And, and obviously, you know, the generous uh, funding that we get from National Science Foundation, National Institute of Health, and all these agencies that sponsor the research, which is definitely critical to our understanding of pathogens. You've been listening to Juan Peria, Chawi Xu, Tanya Nesterova, and Nidhi Katyal of the University of Delaware. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.